0: Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. Scripture for today's sermon comes from Exodus 1:15 through two ten. The word of God speaks to us. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word to us.
1: be to God. Amen. Hey, guys, good morning. It's, uh, it's really fun to be with you guys today, and uh, I can't believe I had the one and only Hillary Burkhart read scripture before me. I was amazing. I feel honored. Love you, sis. Uh, it, it's, it's a really cool thing to get to come here as often as I possibly can and just see what God's doing in your congregation. Um, This is a place marked with God's grace, with life, with people coming to faith, with God forming you, and uh, I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful to step into the flow of what God's already doing here, and hopefully by God's grace, bless that and encourage you guys today. One year ago, we gathered with about 800 men in our downtown congregation, and we spent a weekend talking about redeemed manhood. Then we took three Sundays, and we opened God's word, and we wrestled with what it would look like to as embodied men follow Jesus with the totality of our being. And we told you guys a year ago that we were going to do the same thing with our ladies. And literally for one year, we've had a group of women that lead in our church wrestling with God's word for one year together as a cohort. We've been praying together as elders and deacons literally for a year about what we're leaning into today. And last weekend, it was a powerful artifact of who we are as a church to have 700 women gathered together in our downtown congregation from all five of our congregations to wrestle with following Jesus, not as generic people, but as women as women, and it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Uh, The elders got to be outside just blessing ladies as they came in. We got to walk ladies to their car, and hearing 700 women at the top of their lungs worshiping Jesus was my favorite thing that's happened in 2024 so far. It was beautiful. Now, I want to bring you in to the why behind this. The reason that we're leaning into this today and the reason that we've talked about manhood and womanhood so frequently for the last almost 20 years as a church is because we're seeking by God's grace to be a gender-redeeming church, a gender-redeeming church. Now, we're not trying to be a gender-redeeming church because the elders just want to pick fights or offer ourselves up as human pinatas. We're, we're fully aware of the fact that the that the concept of gender and sexuality is hotly contested ground. We get that. We get that, that this is in some ways the place, the place where there's the most friction and tension and confusion in the world. And we're not leaning into this simply because we want to be shock jocks or we're just trying to shrink the church or we're somehow just trying to like find something to do with our time because we lack decent hobbies, Even though gender and sexuality is contested ground, it's worth wrestling with because it's also holy ground. It's a place where we encounter the mystery of the gospel and what gender and sexuality tells us about God. It's a place where we get to experience some of the deepest healing work that Jesus wants to do as men and women. The work not just to like put a band-aid on a broken bone, but the places where we've been most deeply deformed by the world and wounded by the world, the places where we've most ran away from Jesus, those are some of the deepest places of transformation. When we talk about gender and sexuality, we're talking about some of the deepest dynamics of what it means to be human beings and what it means to image God together as men and women, and what it means that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't be asexual, we won't be like cherubs floating around, we will be men and women perfected by the finished work of Jesus to reflect the radiance of God as brothers and sisters in ways that get us to the very mystery of the triune God. So this matters. This is important. And we're aware of the fact that there's no way in the course of three weeks that we can adequately cover the mystery of womanhood and the glory of God revealed in woman. We're simply going to scratch the surface. But we're, we're a church that's committed to not just do Sunday mornings together. We're committed to gather together life and life in groups all over the city and wrestle with God's word. And so to that end, we've got a whole bunch of resources available for all of you. If you go to our website, we've got books on various stages of life, books on singleness for women, books on marriage, books on gender, books on all kinds of things that we think will serve you, and all of the talks. Our our ladies absolutely crushed home runs last weekend as they taught about feminine virtue, and all of those talks are going to be posted online, and you can engage this not just for the next three weeks, but hopefully for the next year as we wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus as men and women. So today, before I pray and we dive into Exodus, Exodus 1 and 2, um, we wanted to do really important foundational work to bless our sisters. We wanted to remind you of something that's not just ancillary to womanhood, but something that's very connected to the very essence of woman and the vision of God. And we wanted to do this week one because this is foundational for the other relationships and vocations of women. And as we do this today, this is not just something that we want to do for the blessing and benefit of women. We want God to invite brothers in the room to actually grow in repentance for the ways that we've not seen women rightly. We want brothers in the room to grow in appreciation for our sisters, and most importantly, we want brothers in the room to grow in worship as we see the image of God reflected in women around us. So today, we get to talk about woman as life giver, woman as life giver, which includes the potential to carry life biologically, but it includes so much more than that, so much more than that. So will you pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll dive in. Father, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for the ways in which you have gifts for every person in this room. And I pray today as we dive into your word that you would shape us and form us. I pray that the attachments to things that are not leading to worship and glory would be loosened. I pray, Lord Jesus, that our minds would be clear. I pray that you would help me to serve my friends. And I pray that the heart of Father God for his daughters would be on display today. Places where we need healing, Do healing work. Places where we need repentance, give us repentance. Places where we simply need new eyes and new vision to see what you're doing with man and woman, give us new eyes. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would clothe my sisters in robes of glory. The righteousness of Jesus. And I pray that you would put crowns on their head as they follow under the authority of Jesus and take dominion over their domains. And I pray, Lord, that you would give all of us faith to follow you more closely. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, a woman's receptivity to God, her openness to God and her receptivity to the life that God wanted to bring into the world became ground zero for darkness being pushed back on planet Earth. In Mary's yes to God, in Mary's yes to God, as she said yes to God and received the life of Jesus, her yes brought with it the end ultimately of sin, Satan, and death. Her willingness to carry that life and to bring that life into the world with sacrifice and suffering quite literally changed everything. It changed everything. As one of my favorite pastors a british guy named andrew wilson put it the world fell in a man through a woman and the world is redeemed in a man through a woman and though none of mary's sisters are going to give birth to god incarnate can i get an amen and though millions of mary's sisters will never experience the unique pains and joys of biological motherhood All of Mary's sisters, all of the redeemed communion of the saints as embodied women, all of them are called into the world to receive the life of God and to offer the life of God to a world that's dying. This is part of the unique mystery of womanhood. And the story that God is telling in creating women's bodies with the potential to carry life And make no mistake, it is a story. It's something that's pointing beyond itself to invisible realities. The story that God is telling in making women with the amazing, miraculous capacity to carry life is not just about biological potentiality. It's about something spiritual and something relational and something communal. And what God is revealing of himself in women is true for women that have children and it's true for women that have experienced the pain of not being able to have children and it's true for women in all the various circumstances and stages of life including singleness becoming widows aging and eventually dying woman was created in the beginning as a life giver listen to genesis chapter 3 verse 20 it says the man called his wife's name eve 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 means life living because she was the mother of all the living now language is really important and language in genesis really tells us something about god and reality divine language in genesis one and two creates reality literally out of nothing god speaks and order is born god speaks and the cosmos takes on a moral order god speaks and reality is born And corresponding to the speech of God that creates reality, God calls man and woman to speak forth in naming and affirming that reality. As Adam names the animals, what he's doing in that moment is not creating reality. He's simply stepping into the reality that God's creating and giving language to it. So in this particular verse, as he names Eve, Eve, life or living, and says that she's the mother of the living, he's doing something to describe her unique essence as the way that God created her. And what he says about Eve includes her biological potential to carry life and bring life into the world as a mom, but it says something more than just that. Eve was the mother of the living even before she had babies. Eve was the first one that believed the gospel that God preached to the serpent. After Adam and Eve sinned, and death and chaos flooded into creation, God gave a promise. He looked at the serpent and he said, one day the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. And Eve heard that promise and believed that promise. And as she heard that promise and believed it, Eve carried hope for humanity before she carried a child. In fact, she carried a child in the midst of a broken, sinful world because she was first pregnant with hope. And the life that Eve brought into the world through her children was a life that reflects the broader life-giving work of ladies to cultivate life in all their relationships to reflect the image of God. So today, in Exodus 1 and 2, we're going to do two things. We're going to talk about The spiritual relational calling of ladies as life givers, whether you're single or married, whether you have kids or don't have kids, whether you're older or you're younger, this wants to bring you into the kind of courageous cultivation of life that uniquely has feminine fingerprints on it. And then we're going to talk about the biological reality of being moms. We're going to talk about the glory of motherhood because both matter. So take your Bible, go to Exodus 1 and 2. Let me give you just a little bit of introduction to understand this passage. The Exodus is the definitive work of redemption in the Old Testament. It's God flexing on sin, flexing on evil, delivering his people from slavery in Egypt into the promised land. But here's the thing that's crazy that I don't think I saw until the last year. Before God did the work of the Exodus, before he judged the gods of Egypt through plagues, before he had the Passover lamb's sacrificed to point ahead to the work of Jesus, before he parted the Red Sea and brought his people across on dry land, before God gave the law to Moses to bring to the people, before any of that happened, in a culture that was oppressed by death and destruction, God raised up a resistance movement to push back against death and the resistance movement that God raised up among the Israelites is really interesting because it wasn't spearheaded by a prophet it wasn't led by a priest it wasn't led by a mighty warrior the resistance movement that planted feet on the ground of God that were receptive to God and receptive to life as an act of defiance against death was a movement that started with midwives with midwives and the work of the midwives, the posture of the midwives, tells us something about the way, that we're to, the way that we're to relate in a community that actually exists to see new life be given to those around us. And in the midst of this moment, what I want you to understand is that they were facing down the barrel of profound evil and darkness, Take your Bible, look up at verse 8 of chapter 1 real fast. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, the loss of Joseph isn't ultimately about Joseph. It's about God's self-disclosure to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph's ancestors. Joseph is, if you will, a link in the chain of promise, God promised Abraham that one day Abraham would have an offspring who would bring blessing to the world. And that word blessing doesn't mean anything in our culture. We say, God bless you when somebody sneezes, which really means you're gross, get out of my way. But the idea of blessing in scripture is profound it's the reintroduction of peace, it's the redemption of sinners. It's the healing of what's been cursed and broken. Blessing in God's economy is not a surface work. It's a profound reversal of what went wrong at the fall. And so God promised to Abraham that through his lineage, God himself would bring blessing to the world. And as God promised that, as he promised that, his offspring held on to the promise. And Joseph is a link in that chain. Joseph is a symbol of remembering that God's not just the God of heaven. He's the God of earth. He's the God of history. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the one true God who's at work among the nations. He's the God who's promised and pledged that he's going to do the work to rescue and redeem to keep his promise to have a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. So when the Bible tells us that Joseph was forgotten, that's a really big deal. That means that in this particular moment, the absence of remembering Joseph is really about the absence of holding on to the promise of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And what I want you to see is that this is a moment that highlights the moment we're living in, in 2024, when God is forgotten, when his work is forgotten, when his promise is forgotten, People's worth will be forgotten. Theological amnesia always leads to anthropological amnesia, meaning if you forget who God is, we forget what people are for. And if we forget what God is doing, we forget what people are called to. And the loss of the knowledge of God in Exodus 1.8 doesn't just affect the way that people worship or trust in God, it leads to the devaluing of human beings where now all of a sudden slavery sets in and as human beings are dehumanized and become slaves, that then leads to infanticide where the baby boys of the land are murdered. What's at stake here is really high. And in the midst of all that darkness, God is going to use the midwives to remind us that it's not about having a huge political platform or a giant church or having some massive public profile that means that God can use you. What the midwives remind us of is the receptivity to God and the receptivity to life that certainly men are invited into, but women are called to embody and point to as part of their essence that pushes back darkness in the world. And what I want you to do with me for just a couple of minutes is imagine the midwives as a part of the cloud of witnesses. Hebrews tells us that all the saints that have gone before they didn't cease to exist when they died. They're in heaven before the throne of Jesus waiting for the second coming. That includes all the Old Testament saints that trusted that God would bring a Messiah. It includes all the saints that have died before us that trusted in Jesus after the cross and resurrection. They're all around the throne of God, a throne of God worshiping Jesus and praying for us. And I want you to imagine what the midwives might ask the women of our church in 2024. And I just want from this text to give you four things I think they might wanna talk to us about. I think the first thing that the midwives would wanna ask is whom will you fear? Whom will you fear? Because two times in this text, God highlights the fact that the midwives feared God. And this is really wild because Pharaoh called himself the God King. If you know anything about the history of Egypt in this particular moment, Pharaoh had absolute complete sovereign power. He was the God man and you couldn't look him in his eyes. And if you displeased him in any way, he could arbitrarily kill you his word was counted as the word of God. And all of a sudden he decrees that the midwives are to murder the baby boys and there's this group of women who somehow under the great threat of Pharaoh bringing retribution against them are able to plant their feet and fear God in such a way that the fear of God pushes out the fear of man. Now listen, we're human beings and though we can puff out our chest and pretend that we're not, we're pretty fragile, aren't we? And we live in a world where sooner or later you have to reckon with the fact that there's things all around us that have teeth. There's cancer, there's disease, there's death, there's war, there's all kinds of disasters, there's the inevitable slide into aging, there's all the things that break in our families. It's a rational thing if that gets the last word on our lives, to live lives of terror, to like build bunkers in our basements and hide from the world and not go out on Friday night because the world's big and it's hungry and it eats people alive. And if you think that that's hyperbole, you just... Are either overly optimistic or you haven't lived very long yet. The world's a dangerous place. But these ladies, these ladies model for us what happens throughout the entire Bible when women of God get a glimpse of the majesty of God. You can't have simultaneously an all encompassing vision of the glory of Pharaoh and an all encompassing vision of the glory of God simultaneously. You're either going to have a big Pharaoh and a small God, or you're going to have a big God and a small Pharaoh. And for these ladies, they've been captured with the majesty of God in such a way that they're willing to risk everything to lay their lives on the line to be about what God is doing. Now, certainly it's true that both men and women are called to lives of fearing God and trusting God, but don't let it be lost on you that in the most significant passages in the Bible about redeemed womanhood, courageous fear of God and lack of fear of man is always mentioned. In Proverbs 31, which is not a stick used to beat ladies and try to tell you that you suck at being a wife or a mom, Proverbs 31 is the celebration of redeemed womanhood over the course of a lifetime. It's powerful, it's beautiful. It says this in Proverbs 31, 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. This is a woman who so knows the faithfulness of God and the promises of God that instead of like many of her sisters who were crippled by anxiety about the future and about their kids and about aging and about all the what-ifs of life, this is a woman who embodies courage. And it's not accidental that wisdom is personified in Proverbs as a woman, and men of the core dynamics of wisdom begins with fearing God. And in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter's describing Daughters of Abraham, women of faith that have cultivated resilience as they follow Jesus. And here's what he says. You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Uh, Sisters, I think that one of the things that God would call you into as stewards of life, as receivers of life and cultivators of life, is to actually build in your life such awe and reverence for the glory and weight of God that you lose fear of man? The fear of not having the life that you dreamed of? The fear of not finding the spouse that you're hoping that you're gonna find? The fear of your kids not turning out well? The fear of not having enough? There's something that women of faith can offer the entirety of our covenant community that reminds people that God is the one that's in charge of history. They would say, who do you fear? Second thing I think they would ask, is will you receive God and join in with what he's doing? The king of Egypt asked the midwives, why have you done this, letting the male children live? And you can imagine them with a Jewish worldview in which children were seen as gifts from God, not not the creation of parents, but gifts of God. You can imagine them just thinking internally like, well, because you don't throw gifts that God gives you in the Nile. You don't throw gifts that God gives you away. You cherish what God gives you. You protect what God gives you. But listen, the kind of courage that it took to be about what God was doing led them to deep risk. Their work of being midwives was under the cover of darkness. They... They had whatever the Egyptian equivalent of the Gestapo was spying on them. They had to sneak around to do this work of cultivating life, and they did so at great risk to themselves. They risked their own families, they risked their own necks to find what God was doing and just go stand in the middle of it. I love this as a picture for you and me, because these ladies remind us that what God's doing is rarely convenient, and it's always going to cause to sacrifice. The amazing thing about babies, and I I don't have any statistical data to back this up. This is anecdotal from being in a church that has hundreds of babies born every year. But have you noticed that the inconsiderate ways of babies starts when they they decide to be born? Like, babies are rarely born during banker hours, right? Babies love to be born in the middle of the night or when it's too hot or when it's too cold. Babies come out selfish. They start selfish and they stay selfish for a really long time. So you can imagine these ladies, you can imagine these ladies risking their lives hearing, oh, this lady over here, she's about to go into labor or she's in labor, and then they sneak out, whatever time of day or night it is. They have to avoid Pharaoh's police, get over to what God's doing, and then when they get there, here's what's crazy. They have to stand in the blood and the mess and the pain and the chaos of new life, offering hope to their sisters, that they were made to do this and that there's joy coming for them. I I got to talk to a labor and delivery nurse who's a good friend of mine and a friend of mine who's a doula this last week to get ready for the sermon and I just wanted to hear, like, what did you learn in all of those moments where you got to be there in the chaos of the labor and delivery room? What have you learned about Christian community and discipleship and the people of God? And I've only experienced it twice, and both times it was so overwhelming. I wanted to hear their stories. And both of them said the same thing. They both said the thing that's so wild about it is in the midst of all of the pain and all of the blood and agony... When that baby is born and mom gets to hold the baby for the first time, the pain is forgotten and joy gets turned up to like 14. See, the midwives want to remind us of a really important dynamic that ladies get to lead the way in, in the people of God. And that's that death can be tranquil, tranquil, but life is never tranquil. You can die in your sleep, but you can't be born without chaos and pain and fear and agony. And the spiritual life that God's doing in our community is not a life that's sterile and clean. When God's doing new life, when he's delivering people, when he's saving people, when he's transforming lives, when he's restoring marriages, when he's leading people to repentance, it's like a labor and delivery room. It's bloody, and it's scary, and we're all tempted to believe the lie that we can not do it, that we're not going to be able to finish the work that God started. And what the midwives would tell the Hebrew women in the midst of birth is, you can do this, joy is coming. And what the ladies of our church are called to is to be so receptive to life that they're willing to remind the rest of us that in all the chaos, blood, and turmoil, God's working. And just as a woman's body is made to go through that pain and a good labor and delivery nurse is going to say, you can do this, joy is coming, that gets translated into the spiritual realities of discipleship and repentance and transformation where we get to say to each other again and again, not you can do this, but God can do this. This is what change looks like. This is what transformation feels like. And in the midst of all this, I love, love, love. I love that these ladies are essential for the depth and glory of the people of God. Look at verse 20. So, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. They multiplied and grew very strong. The midwives' receptivity to God and receptivity to life, their, their willingness to be decentered and risk in joining what God was doing, even when it was messy, actually leads to multiplication and depth among the people of God. The church, if it's going to be healthy and grow, if it's going to be deep and flourish, needs both spiritual dads and spiritual moms. It needs brothers and it needs sisters. And the entire story of the Bible is full of women who were life givers, even if they never had babies. If you go one chapter over, we're introduced to Pharaoh's daughter in Exodus 2, who offered life-giving nurture to Moses as she was moved with compassion. It's a powerful, amazing picture of just feminine grace and nurture. She sees the baby, and the Bible says that she had pity on it, which is a word that's often used to describe the bowels of God being moved with compassion for his people. She's moved with compassion, so she takes this baby in, equips this baby, gives it all the resources of Egypt so that God can use Moses to overthrow Egypt. Then we have Pharaoh's, or we have uh, Moses' little sister in Exodus 2, who's a young woman. She's not a mom, but her watchful diligence brings life to her little brother. She's willing to take initiative. She's willing to go up to the most powerful woman in the entire empire and risk her neck. And then she's willing to use cunning to orchestrate her own mom being the wet nurse of Moses. It's a crazy, courageous act of watchful life-giving. And then we get to the New Testament and there's just examples everywhere. We have Lydia who gave life to Paul and his traveling companions by providing rest and respite after they got the trash beat out of them, before they were about to get the trash beat out of them again. And then we have Lydia who's a most likely widowed businesswoman who uses her home and who models for us the kind of gospel hospitality that's not just about like throwing a good dinner party but it's actually creating space that's conducive for life and transformation? Do, do you guys understand what I'm saying? True gospel hospitality is not just about having your house clean and you know throwing a nice party and having an icebreaker. True gospel hospitality is an attentiveness to what God is doing and it's creating space so that trust can be built, so that transformation can happen. And Lydia does that for the early church. As a single woman, she, she uses her home as this incubator it actually becomes the place that God birthed the healthiest church in the New Testament. Then we have one of my favorite ladies in the New Testament, a lady named Dorcas. I have no faith that we're going to edge that name into the top 10 of baby names this year. You can read about Dorcas or Tabitha in Acts chapter 9. She was so full of charity and good works. Like this is a lady that calloused her hands serving people that when she died, the early church was like, Oh, we we can't have Dorcas dead. Somebody go get an apostle to raise her from the dead. They send for Peter. Peter raises her from the dead, and she gets immediately back to work, giving life away to the church. You have Priscilla, who, along with her husband, offered life and clarity by explaining the gospel more fully to Apollos. You have the life-giving words of Philip's four single daughters who prophesy in Acts 21. And then you have Rufus's mom, who Paul says was also a spiritual mom to him in Romans chapter 16. And I know that we can do this thing where it's like, well, men can be life givers and women can be life givers. And yeah, that's true. Men can nurture. Paul can say to the Thessalonians, I was with you in gentleness like a nursing mother. And J.L. can certainly drive a tent spike through Sisera's skull. That's true. But even those moments highlight that highlights unique, glorious essence of women as life givers. And what I want to say, what I want to say is that we need, we need like ferocious, godly, stable, not fearful women as a church who are so receptive to God and so receptive to whatever he is doing to bring life that our community gets deepened like their community got deepened. Now, Let's change gears. And this is not going to take long, but it's so important. I want to talk about mothering. I want to talk about mothering because chapter one highlights the work of midwives, and those are all the ways that women are called to give away their life and cultivate life, not as moms. But chapter two highlights biological life giving as a mother in the life of Jochebed. Jochebed was Moses' mom. And I just want to give you a few things about motherhood that I want to plant into the soil of Frontline so that we can cultivate this together and see it grow. Let me give you four or five things very fast. First of all, motherhood proclaims hope in God. Hope in God. I've talked to so many newlywed couples throughout the course of the last couple of years, and it's been interesting to see anxiety about having kids get elevated to a place that I haven't seen in my 25 years of ministry. There's so many people that are like, I just don't think we can bring kids into the world. Um, the political climate feels scary. The economy feels scary. Um, there's wars going on. Climate change. And there's this whole litany of reasons why it just feels like a really irresponsible thing to bring children into the world. And I understand that. I get that. But here's the crazy thing. Jacobed is a part of an enslaved people, and as she and her husband bring Moses into the world, here's what she's saying. She's saying Moses is not in charge of history, or Pharaoh is not in charge of history. Pharaoh's not sovereign. Pharaoh's not in charge of the story of this baby. Pharaoh is not in charge of what God is doing in the universe. God is in charge. Motherhood in the life of Jochebed and all faithful mothers since her is a refusal to look at the world and say it's not worth redeeming. Motherhood reminds us that God is at work in history, that God is working, that God loves the world, that the world is worth fighting for, and the world is a good place to live, even though it's a broken place. Motherhood testifies that God is in charge. In addition, motherhood pictures the hospitality of God. Abigail Favali, in her excellent book, Genesis of Gender, writes this, a pregnant woman is an image of that love that generates all things, the love in which we live and move and have our being. Now, this is an imperfect analogy because God can give and give and give and never be depleted. Moms give and are depleted, but there are few pictures of the life-giving, self-giving care of God for his creation and for his children in particular more than a mom carrying a baby and a mom nurturing a little child. Because it's not a reciprocal relationship. That baby in a mom's womb is not giving her anything except indigestion (laughs) and nausea, tap dancing on her bladder, keeping her from sleeping. And that mom is enveloping that baby in her love and in her presence. She's offering her very life to that baby. She's sustaining that baby from her own life, from her own nature, that's a picture of the love of God. God says in the Psalms, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. God is the one that gives. He's the one that provides. It's so fun at Frontline Downtown right now because there's several ladies on staff that are all pregnant at the same time. And it's fun to see like the like, next level ninja expert snacks that they're bringing to work. Like, they're just killing it on healthy snacks. They've got, like, the protein ratios all figured out, micros and macros. They're doing, like, cherries. It's very different than when me and Nancy had kids and we were just trying to survive on ramen noodles. Um, But these ladies are crushing it. And every time I walk into the room and these ladies are breaking out their cornucopia of healthy snacks, I'm like, that's good. You eat that because you are creating a human inside of you. Motherhood reminds the people of God of the life-giving nurturing hospitality of God that in him we live and we move and we have our being. Thirdly, motherhood reminds us it reminds us of the power and glory of unseen worship. Unseen worship. Um, I, you know, we know that Jochebed did all the things that moms typically don't get thanked for. She carried that baby. She sustained that baby. She delivered that baby. She nursed that baby. She changed the diapers of that baby. These are things that happen in the wee hours of the morning. These are things that the community doesn't celebrate. These are things that don't get put on the news. But then you have the picture of what she does with the basket that sort of, it sort of encapsulates the whole work of motherhood. We don't know how many hours she put into that basket, but it was significant. We don't know what time of the night she worked on that basket after all of her other work was done, but it was significant. We know that she put diligence into it. She put care into it. She had to keep that basket floating. She put craftsmanship into it. See, I don't think there's anything in the Christian community that models and reminds all of us of what Jesus said about giving to the needy better than moms. Jesus said, when you give to the needy, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, but give in secret, and God who sees in secret will reward you. We live in this moment where we want everything to be public and celebrated, we want things to be big, and flashy, and important, and sexy, and motherhood reminds us again, and again, and again, that God has a totally different value system than we have. God doesn't care about the big, and the flashy, and the public. God cares about unseen worship that's offered to him in caring for those that have needs, right? Moms of little kids, I just want to tell you, it can so often in our culture feel like you're deferring the more important use of your gifts especially when you're caring for littles it can feel like you're just like you're like circling the runway of life getting started man it makes me so sad to think about the church culture that nancy and i were in as i served on staff at a different church when we had little kids and how much of that church culture was like the only thing that really matters is if you're using your gifts in big and public ways And the message to moms so often is like, why would you settle for that? Why would you do that? And I want us to have the kind of church culture that flips that on its head, that actually looks up to moms as a model for all of us, that God actually cares about quiet, simple, private acts of devotion and love. That he sees it and he honors it. In addition to that, Jochebed reminds us that motherhood is about sending, and it's always mixed with pain. And Jochebed's story is the radical, crazy exception that proves the rule. Um, Think about this. Pharaoh ups the intensity of his decree to kill the baby boys. It, It started as a command just to the midwives. They disobey it. So Pharaoh ups the intensity by then commanding the whole nation if they find a Hebrew baby boy to kill him. So all of a sudden all of a sudden, here's this mom who's given birth to this baby and she knows that she has to keep him hidden. And if he's found, he's going to be killed. If the neighbors hear the baby crying, he could be killed. If somebody informs, he could be killed. So she gets to a place where for whatever reason, for whatever circumstances, she realized she can't keep him safe anymore. She can't hide him anymore. So she does this crazy thing that's this concentrated picture of what all moms have to do. She builds a basket and she places her heart inside the basket and she lets it go. She lets it go. When Simeon prophesied to Mary that a sword will pierce her heart, That's true of every mom. Motherhood is this reminder that God doesn't give us precious gifts for us to own them or control them or clutch them. God gives us precious gifts to hold them with open hands and to release them back to God. And if you don't release gifts back to God, they turn sour in our hands. This is why one of the greatest pictures of twisted motherhood is a mother that, tries to control and holds on and won't release her kids. because mothers are a picture in the covenant community of entrusting the things that are the most precious to you back into God's hands to let go of control and trust God. And this is hard. It's hard for dads. it's hard for dads. I mean, being empty nesters now and saying goodbye to my son for three years tomorrow he's shipping out for uh, another, for a, his first deployment. It's hard as a dad, but I didn't carry my kids inside my body. There is something powerful that women in our church can model as moms about trusting in the providence of God by holding your kids with open hands and raising your kids not to hold on to them, but to send them into the world and let them go. And then lastly, I'll close with this. Motherhood, and this is so obvious, but it so has to be said, especially in our culture. Motherhood makes a generational impact. I don't know what other gifts and capacities that Jochebed had. I'm sure she had tons. I'm sure she was a gifted teacher. She probably blessed Israel in a thousand different ways. We don't have those recorded, but we do have recorded the fact that she gave birth to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Miriam was a prophetess that led the people of God in worship. Aaron served as the high priest to the Lord. Moses served as God's spokesman who God used to deliver Egypt. Now, this in no way says that your only contribution as a woman is if you have kids. That is not the message of the Bible. But it is a part of the message of the Bible to ladies that the world would tell you that you're just sort of wasting your talent by having kids and caring for those kids, and the Bible at every turn would say the opposite, that's a way to change the world. That's a way to change the world. It's a powerful, powerful, multi-generational thing that happens when moms invest in their children. So let me leave you with this in closing. This is a great article that I read recently. Here's what she says. Children rank below college. Below world travel for sure, below the ability to get out at night at your leisure, below honing your body at the gym, below any job that you have or hope to get. In fact, children rate below your desire to sit around and pick your toes if that's what you want to do, below everything. Children are the last thing you should ever want to spend your time on. Motherhood is not a hobby, it's a calling. You do not collect children because you find them cuter than stamps. It's not something you do if you can squeeze the time in. It's what God gives you time for. Christian mothers carry their children in hostile territory. When you're in public with them, you're standing with and defending the objects of cultural dislike. You're publicly testifying that you value what God values, that you refuse to value what the world values. You stand with the defenseless and in front of the needy. You represent everything that our culture hates. Because you represent laying down your life for another. And laying down your life for another represents the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you so much for coming to us in Jesus and offering us your life. We ask that all of us would grow to reflect Mary's receptivity of you and your word. That all of our souls would say with Mary, be it done to me according to your word. We pray that you would fill us with your life. We pray that you would help us to cultivate life around us. And I pray in particular for my sisters, Lord, that you would use them in powerful ways. Married, single, young, old, stay-at-home moms, moms that are working in the marketplace. I pray that you would use them to cultivate life, to push back against a world full of death. God, places in the room where new life that you're giving feels like labor and delivery, pray that you would help those people to receive the good work of spiritual midwives around them that would step into the mess and the blood and the chaos and say, hey, you know what? God can do this. This is what you were made for. Joy is coming. Don't give up. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fill us with your spirit and nourish us as we eat this meal. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we stand?